Hello, it's Friday, June the 30th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow, and as you're listening to this sometime on or around the 4th of July, we thought it'd be a good time to talk about the current state of the American Republic. We happen to have the ideal guest for such a conversation. David M. Kennedy is the Donald J. McLaughlin Professor of History Emeritus at Stanford University. For decades, he's been recognized and honored as one of the nation's guiding lights on American political and social thought. His book, Birth Control in America, received both the John Gilmary Shea Prize and the Bancroft Prize. Over here, his book on the First World War in American Society was a Pulitzer finalist. And in 2000, he was awarded the Pulitzer for History for Freedom from Fear, the best book I've ever read on the Great Depression, the New Deal, and the Second World War. He joins us today from his native Washington state. Professor Kennedy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be with you, Bill. I am sitting on the Stanford campus where it's going to be in maybe the upper 70s today, very little humidity, not a cloud in the sky, and yet you have traded that in for the Pacific Northwest. Please please make your case for why. Well, <laughs> I'm sitting on San Juan Island looking across Haro Strait at Vancouver Island in Canada and uh, reflecting from time to time on the different political cultures of these two societies. <laughs> and you're not crossing over the border to join Canada, are you? You're still going to stay in America. I'm staying here. Very good. Well, Tuesday is the 4th of July, 241 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, that's not the sort of number that is commemorative. It doesn't have a zero affixed to it or a five, that sort of thing that is a silver or a golden anniversary. But I did notice that when you look at America at 241, let's go back and look at America at age 41, David Kennedy, which would be 1817, the era of good feelings and political continuity in the form of Jefferson and Madison Monroe. You fast forward 100 years to America at age 141, and that's 1917, which you've written about, which is America plunging into the First World War. And here we are 100 years later, America approaching its 241st anniversary. What do you make of the situation? Well, I think probably of the two other touch points that you mentioned, the one that's neither one of them is particularly opposite, actually, to the situation we find ourselves in, but I suppose, if anything, it's 19. 19- 17 is a better candidate. You're, you're, you're quite right. 1817 was, uh, we're at the tail end, essentially, of the so-called era of good feelings when the Virginia dynasty had ruled the presidency for three consecutive uh, presidencies, uh, uh, Jefferson's, Madison's, and Monroe's. And there was no such thing as political parties uh, as we know them today. And some people think there's a correlation there between the absence of organized political parties and the kind of consensus that gave rise to the descriptor of the era of good feelings. Uh, It was a pretty halcyon time in American history. The revolution had been successfully fought. The Constitution had been successfully uh, instituted. The War of 1812 had come to a kind of a raggedy conclusion, to be sure, but uh, there were no foreign threats of any consequence by 1817, and there was a great sense of national self-confidence about the future. 1917, of course, the what we know as World War One, then known as either the Great War or the European War, was already three years old. The United States is just about to enter it in April of 1917, a highly contentious matter at the time, uh, and in some ways been contentious ever since. But I think uh, even the contention of 1917, when there were 56 votes in the Congress against the declaration of war, which is quite extraordinary in the history of declarations of war, but even that doesn't, I think, measure up to the degree of contention and partisan uh, contestation that we see today. 
All right. So I'm going to ask you the, the obligatory question. Don't take my head off, but as, an, as a history professor emeritus, uh, this must be similar to a retired baseball player being asked who was the toughest pitcher you face, but the question you must get on a daily basis is how divided are we these days? And I can anticipate some of your answer. This is not the Civil War. There are not hundreds of thousands of people dead, dead on fields. But there is this question of really how divided this nation is right now. Well, certainly there's a, that, that is a question for our time, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I get asked that kind of question or a version of that question frequently, and my standard answer, you've already anticipated it, is <clears throat> that uh, there is a moment that defines a kind of boundary condition of ultimate uh, partisan division, and that's the 1860 <laughs> and the Civil War, when we killed 700,000 of each other to make the point about uh, maintaining the Union and, and terminating the institution of slavery. So we're not even close to that, let, let's be clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we are in a period of quite remarkable polarization and political contestation. In some ways, it's, we're, we're living in a, a particularly nasty version of an issue that's been with us for a long, long time. And so the underlying issue, I think, really is the effectiveness of our governmental institutions and whether they are apposite to the historical circumstances we find ourselves in and whether our government is appropriately scaled and structured for the nature of the society that we actually inhabit. Uh, this, this is a perennial issue in all societies, and it's a deep issue in political theory and practice going back millennia. Uh, but we have a particularly acute version of it, I think, because of a the structure we put in place, we meaning our forebears, at that famous constitutional convention of Philadelphia in 1787, when we created a national government and created a new institution, essentially a new institution in the political world and overall historical time, and that is the presidency. There was no precedent for the presidency in our colonial period. Uh, what looks at first glance like a, pres- a precedent would be the royal governors of the individual colonies, but they were not elected. They were appointed by the crown or by parliament, and uh, they were deeply resented here on the ground in the 13 colonies, precisely because there was no popular local participation in their selection. And yet the framers of the Constitution wanted a stronger executive than they had under the Articles of Confederation, but they were deeply fearful of too strong an executive. So we got this peculiar institution of the presidency. The president, Our presidency is... Um, at least at that time, was a virtually a unique institution in the world. It's interesting that very few, if any, countries that in the last half century or three-quarters of a century have created new constitutions. Almost none have emulated ours. Um, the, the standard new constitution that's written in the world today, roughly speaking, takes as its model the British system, which is a parliamentary system where the majority in the legislature is the executive. And we, by design, we have a different uh, system where we have independently elected legislators and uh, executive, and they don't necessarily see eye to eye. Uh, and our current situation is quite peculiar because we have a president who is used to be a Democrat and is now nominally a Republican, but has very little, if any, long-term organic relationship with the party to which he nominally belongs and which nominates the Congress. So. In a sense, what we're living through and have been for a long time is the consequence of the very odd architecture of our constitutional system. And for at least a century, I'd say since we're going back in time here on this uh, trip, Bill, um, 
since at least 1885, when a young political scientist at Johns Hopkins University wrote a doctoral dissertation, which became a book called Congressional Government. And that young Ph.D. was Woodrow Wilson, (laughs) then known as Thomas Woodrow Wilson. And that book, Congressional Government, was written in 1885, and you could read it today and you'd think it was written yesterday because it's just a long litany about how the Congress is incapable by its very nature of consistent and coherent government. It represents too many parochial interests. It's too divided in its constituencies and its electoral bases. And that book that the young 20-something Woodrow Wilson wrote was a plea for a stronger executive. And, of course, he becomes one of the stronger executives in American history when he eventually becomes president in 1913. Um, but you can date from that, uh, his book in 1885, the beginnings of a continuous tradition from then until now that we need a more coherent and effective system of government in which there is better alignment between the legislative and the executive branches, and we have an executive that's nimble and powerful and yet still doesn't threaten to get out of hand. Right. I mean, one contemporary version of this, this ancient uh, kind of a refrain is something that Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, says with some frequency, although he hasn't said it for the last year for understandable reasons, but uh, before a year ago or so, uh, he would say frequently, if only we could be China for one day, (laughs) and we could make these decisions about all the great questions that uh, we face about immigration reform and tax reform and infrastructure and so on and so forth, get the decisions made and do them. Uh, and then we can go back to our regular system after that one day of decision-making. But that, he's sounding the same note that Woodrow Wilson did over 100 years ago, that we, we yearn for more efficiency, more uh, effective power vested in the executive branch, and we simply don't have it. Exactly. I was uh, leafing through uh, Freedom for Fear last night, and I came across um, something that really struck me as, uh, as relevant to today. And uh, you were discussing... Um, the public's mood during the Great Depression and really the public's approach to how to handle the Great Depression. And what you observed was that the American public was relatively submissive during that period, Um, not in terms of accepting its hardship, but it was submissive in terms that wasn't revolting against the situation. Uh, This was a time of 20, what, 25 percent employment, unemployment, I believe. I forget about underemployment. One in four people were out of work and not find a job. But yet you didn't see Americans taking to the streets and tearing up the pavement and burning buildings and such. They, They went about life. But this generation, David Kennedy, seems to be constantly on the march. Now, whether it's real or feigned, uh, we seem to be constantly spilling into the streets protesting. Well, I think that observation is correct, and I think there's a connection between those two observations about then and now, because I think the the vast expansion of federal institutions, uh, the federal institutions at the federal level, uh, the creation of new kinds of programs that directly link citizen and government, I think particularly of the most famous of them all, Social Security, uh, really shifted the schedule of American attitudes toward government and um, expectations of government. Uh, The the, the passivity of the early 30s in the face of this enormous catastrophe of the Great Depression was really quite remarkable uh, because there had been well over a century's worth of, you might say, experience or behavior where people had very low expectations about what government could or should do. Those controversies continued in our own time, to be sure, but I think the kind of baseline 
expectation of what government is all about has shifted from the 30s and the 1930s until now. And we have a much more robust, reflexive expectation that in the face of systemic problems and persistent issues and so on, the government's supposed to do something about it, even though it has trouble doing it, but there's an expectation that it should. So I think something, something changed, something fundamental changed in American, the American psyche, if you want, or the American value structure as a legacy of the 1930s. Uh, and we have a different set of expectations about and norms about government's role, but we're still settled with that architecture that I mentioned a moment ago where it's very difficult for the one person in Washington, the one person in Washington who is elected by the country at large, more or less, the Electoral College will set aside for a moment, is the president. Uh, but the president is only one of 536 elected officials in Washington, D.C. The other 535 are in the Congress, 435 in the House and 100 in the Senate. And they all have their own roles to play. And they're not necessarily the same as the president's or each other's. So we, we still lack, it's this chronic issue again, we lack an, a constitutional architecture that invests uh, sufficient, what, what I would regard, and I think a lot of people regard, as a sufficient measure of discretion and power and authority in the executive to actually get things done. I mentioned Woodrow Wilson's famous book, uh, Congressional Government, a moment ago. Uh, there's actually a Hoover fellow who has written a kind of update of that book, uh, Terry Moe, in his recent book called Relic. And Relic, uh, the, the, the title, uh, what he's describing in the title, the Relic, is the Constitution, <laughs> which uh, he thinks is uh, was appropriate in the 18th century, but is inappropriate in the modern world where we need a more robust presidency or executive with uh, greater scope for action. So to repeat, I know I'm repeating myself, but this is a persistent uh, theme over at least the last century and a half, and uh, we're kind of stuck with it. Now, are you in Terry Moe's camp, or are you in Woodrow Wilson's camp? Well, I think they're in the same camp. They, they, oh. they, they both want, uh, Wilson in 1885 and Terry Moe a year or two ago, a, a stronger executive. Now, frankly, a lot of people like Terry Moe and Woodrow Wilson, who... Uh, sounded that note up until November of 2016, have been a little mute since then, mm -hmm. <laughs> because some people today uh, express gratitude to our founders for creating a presidency that was jacketed by the famous system of checks and balances and really did not have great scope for action, because they think we have a person in office today, if he were given full scope, uh, might, uh, might go in the wrong direction. So... <laughs> got to be careful what you wish for. If you want a stronger executive, then you got to anticipate the possibility you'll get somebody in there who will do things that you're very unhappy with. Right. I'd like to talk about the executive in particular in a moment, but first I'd like to ask you this question about the federal government and checks and balances. We have one party that controls both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. On paper, at least the Republicans should be able to do what they want. If they can't do it by straight votes, they can do it by various stunts, such as changing rules on filibusters and so forth. But it seems to me, David Kennedy, that Republicans have learned a very hard lesson uh, since Donald Trump took office. I think it was Calvin Coolidge who said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, he said something to the extent that the federal government vanished overnight. It would take the average American about, what, six months to notice? Yeah. Um, that's not true in this day and age. If the American government vanished overnight, you would quickly notice in terms of your social security checks, uh, in terms of certain safeguards the government provides. This was obviously before FDR. It was before Bill Clinton claimed the era big government was over. It seems to me, David, that Republicans learned the hard way that government is here to stay. 
Well, I think you're right. Um, when I think of today's Republican Party, uh, I think of a remark that the comedian Will Rogers made in the 1920s about the Democratic Party. Uh, Will Rogers said, I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Um, and you could say something similar about the Republicans today. They, they really don't seem to be able to function as a coherent political unit. And the, the difficulty that a succession of speakers in the House have had, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, of course, in, in uh, marshalling and shepherding their caucus into a coherent uh, plan of government and voting pattern, uh, is uh, confirms the case. Um, and I think, uh, to repeat what I said a moment ago, the president himself is has a very peculiar uh, relationship with his own nominal, the party to which he nominally belongs. So it's a kind of a, uh, again, I, Mitch McConnell, I think, might be an exception to what I'm about to say, but only a partial exception. It's a kind of a headless party. There's, there's no one who really effectively commands the the caucus or the conference uh, to uh, produce uh, coherent legislation. You know, you mentioned Franklin Roosevelt, and of course in any discussion of the presidency, he always manages to figure prominently. But if you think about the, the moments in American history over the last two and a half centuries, roughly, when big things have happened, when, when change happened on a scale that proved uh, life-changing for large numbers of people, and permanent, or at least long-lasting. Think, of course, of the Civil War era, preservation of the Union, emancipation of slaves, three constitutional amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th. Think of the era of Woodrow Wilson in the, at least his first term, 1913 to 1917. Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s. And I'd probably throw Ronald Reagan into this mix, too, in the 1980s. But all those moments, less so in Reagan's case, but certainly emphatically true of the others, they were moments when, for all practical purposes, we had a parliamentary system. That is to say, the same party controlled the legislature and the executive, and they had enormous majorities in the legislature. In 1930, after the election of 1936, I think there were only 16 Republican senators. So Franklin Roosevelt had command of a party with such deep uh, majorities in both chambers that he could really get a lot of things done um, because of that particular situation. But that, that is not our baseline situation. Our baseline situation is divided government. Some people celebrate that as a, kind of the ultimate expression of checks and balances. Or with such thin and fragile majorities in the Congress, uh, even if the same person, the same party is in the White House, that it's very difficult to produce consistently coherent legislative coalitions. So, uh, again, I go back to the point I made at the outset of our discussion, Bill, that uh, we, we live in a system of constitutional architecture that uh, it dictates the terms of political behavior to a degree that make us very, very uncomfortable. But we don't seem to have the will, and I don't see a, a measure of will coming over the horizon that would uh, substantially change this. So I think it's, it's a price we pay for the system we're, we are uh, saddled with. All right. So that leads us to Donald Trump. Now, uh, I think it's very difficult for politicians to, to channel past presidents, to chase ghosts, if you will. Democrats learned this lesson the hard way in terms of trying to channel John Kennedy for decades. Republicans more recently have learned this trying to emulate repeat Ronald Reagan. Uh, and yet we have a fellow in the White House who 
wants to be Andrew Jackson, thinks he's Andrew Jackson, uh, is just one step shy of tweeting people into duels, uh, thinking he's Andrew Jackson. But do you look at when you look at Donald Trump, David Kennedy, do you see Andrew Jackson? Well, when I look at photographs of President Trump in the Oval Office, I literally see Andrew Jackson because, because he's he on the wall behind him. hung his portrait <laughs> in the Oval Office. Uh, interestingly, as he sits at the Resolute desk, uh, Andrew Jackson is on his left. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how self-conscious that is, but uh, whether he's trying to say that he, he's to the right of Andrew Jackson, even I, uh, that's just kind of idle speculation. But. Look, um, again, I get asked the question plenty of times, and lots of people do, uh, what precedent is there for this presidency? And the best I can come up with is Andrew Jackson, but the fact is I don't think we have a precedent of any meaningfully instructive value uh, for what this particular individual represents and what what he aspires to do and how he will conduct himself in the office. So Andrew Jackson is a kind of a rough proxy, I guess, for reasons both of personality and politics. Uh, Jackson was condemned from all the pulpits of his day uh, as a border ruffian, a frontier brawler, carried bullets in his body for throughout all his adult life until death uh, from duels that he'd fought as a young man, spoke highly ungrammatical uh, English, uh, couldn't spell properly, I mean, very poorly educated but an enormously powerful personality, and one who did put his stamp deeply on the culture and the politics of his time. So there there are some, you might say, cosmetic uh, kind of uh, parallels with uh, the current uh, incumbent. But uh, Jackson also had a fairly, a reasonably coherent program that he uh, wanted to pursue and did pursue. I mean, he, he wanted to devolve more power to the states and contain the power of the federal government. His great political opponent was Henry Clay, whose program called the American System. That was capital A, capital S. That was a Whig, uh, the Whig or Henry Clay program, was to invest more power in the federal government and do things like build infrastructure, canals and ports and eventually railroads and so on. Uh, Jackson was against all that. He wanted the power to remain in the states, didn't want the federal government to accrue any more power. Uh, he wanted to um, expel from the body politic people who were, who were in the road, um, impeding white settlement. That's the famous Trail of Tears episode where he puts in process the, the, the policy that uh, ejects um, tribes from the southeastern part of the United States to what's now Oklahoma. Um, and he wanted to make war on the uh, central banking system of the United States, so he kills off the Bank of, United, of the United States and devolves the right to charter banks from the federal government to the states to an extraordinary degree. And here we come back to a linkage between Andrew Jackson and Franklin Roosevelt or Herbert Hoover, because thanks to Jackson's policies in the banking sphere back in the 1820s and 30s, uh, we created a banking system that just proliferated the, the number of banks. There were something like 25,000 banks in the United States by the 1920s, all a direct legacy of, of Jackson's war on the central banking system. And a lot of those banks were tiny little unitary institutions with maybe a county-wide service area dependent on a single business, usually a single crop throughout much of the commercial farming areas of the Midwest in particular. 
no wonder they failed like uh, they just went down like dead timber um, right. when the Depression hit. Canada, which I'm looking at out my window here, uh, in the great uh, during the Great Depression era, had exactly five banks, not one of which failed because they were all big and resilient enough to withstand the shock of the Depression. The American banking system was highly vulnerable. So the point is that uh, going back to whether Jackson forms a point of comparison with Trump, he had a fairly coherent program. You look back on it historically, and you can pick out the high points and the logic and the consistency. Right. And we, we may or may not like the consequences of those policies, but at least they're comprehensible. Right. And I, uh, honestly, uh, as, this, as just an observer of the current scene, I couldn't say with any confidence at all what the current president's vision is, what his program is, what the... What are the parameters of the possible, the aspirational? Uh, there, there are discrete items here and there. They're not entirely consistent. And the campaign on the basis of improving life for working-class Americans, particularly in coal districts and so on, and that's not happening. Uh, in fact, some of the policies that he seems to be putting his approval to, particularly in the health care area, are going to inflict some of their worst damage on the very people that he promised to help. So it's just the inconsistency of it is pretty baffling. Right. So one other thing about Andrew Jackson is he has a lasting impact on his party to the extent where well into the 20th century, if you're attending Democratic fundraisers, they're called Jefferson Jackson dinners. Yes. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Well, yes. In fact, Jackson presides over and largely motivates and implements the era of mass Democratic, small d, Democratic uh, participation. I mean, the electorate before Jackson's time was maybe a few hundred thousand people, but uh, something, uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head so I don't get it exactly right, but something like a million and a half people voted in the election of 1832. And that's at a time when, let's say, for comparison, the French electorate was maybe 80 or 90,000 people, the British electorate might have been roughly 100,000 people, and here a million and a half people for the United States. So Jackson, he is correctly associated with this mass democratization of right. our political system, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the, organ, the, the kinds of political parties that emerge out of that era, particularly the Democratic Party, uh, persist right down to our, our present day. Yeah, but I, I don't think you're going to wager your precious home on your precious island that 170 years from now, Republicans will be having Reagan-Trump dinners. Um, no, I wouldn't wager that or even a... Uh, uh, a tinker's farthing on, on no, that but that, but, the, but, but that does raise this question, though. Is Donald Trump a blip on our radar? Is he an anomaly in the great list of American presidents? Or do you think that there is actually something beginning with him that will continue after him? Well, again, uh, you know, historians love to say uh, only the future will be able to tell. Right. That's our, our dodge for all these things. But, but, but let's, just, let's just spool back in time a little bit, because there's another development in our political culture that's roughly a century old, that uh, development that accelerated after the 1960s, that I do think has, uh, uh, therein lies some of the explanation for what happened in 2016. What I'm talking about is primary elections. Mm -hmm. Um, And and again, this in a kind of a Jacksonian mood, several states in the early 20th century, in an effort to combat the power of the corporations and the political machines that they thought were the creatures of the corporations and so on, decided that they would try to take political decision-making to some degree out of the hands of the party bosses and the smoke-filled room and so on, and 
deliver it directly into the hands of the people with things like the initiative and the referendum and the recall and primary elections so that voters at large choose candidates rather than a few operatives at the top of the party machinery. California, as it happens, was one of the very first states to do this, slightly preceded by Oregon. Um, Oregon had the first binding party presidential primary election in 1910. California follows within two to four years after, and then that system spreads a little bit. But as late as 1960, uh, when Kennedy and Nixon were running, a decided minority of states had primary elections for presidential nominations. Um, Again, I'm doing this from memory. I'm not sure I've got it right, but I think it was 16 states had primaries by 1960. Now every state has either a primary or a caucus system, which is the functional equivalent. And so much bigger swaths of the body politic of the citizenry are now engrossed in the candidate selection process compared to, say, 100 or 150 years ago when it was organized parties that groomed and vetted and recruited and put up candidates. And now it's the electorate at large, and as we know, this has become a truism, The elect- it's not exactly the electorate at large, it's the most motivated and impassioned uh, factions within any given party that actually show up and vote in primary elections. So the primaries, uh, the, the, the prevalence of primaries, I think, is one of the things that has driven polarization and driven uh, us to, uh, let, let's, if I can put it this way, less coherence and logic and rationality in the selection of candidates. And I think uh, President Trump is, in some ways, the, the manifestation of that, that he, he dominated the primary election process in the Republican Party, and nobody figured out a way to uh, block him, and he mobilized enough sentiment to get the nomination. And it's, it's simply that, in the days of the smoke-filled room, when party elites really had effective control over the nominating process, I say with confidence that never could have happened. So maybe the lesson here, if there is one, is that there's there's such a thing as too much democracy or too much (laughs) popular participation in these kinds of processes, at least at that level. Let me wind down the podcast with two questions, because I know you have some unpleasant housekeeping you have to tend to after you get off the the phone. First question is, when Barack Obama stepped down on January 20th of this year, uh, it completed the third consecutive two-term presidency in this country. And this has happened only once before in the nation, and we've already referred to it as the era of good feelings, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, each serving two terms. 42, 43, and 44 are the only other presidents to pull this off. But as you mentioned, there was relative stability back in the early part of the 19th century. These Virginians were all sort of extensions. They all kind of naturally segued. They complemented each other. But we've been on Mr. Toad's wild ride when it comes from going from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush to Barack Obama to now Donald Trump. Why do American voters, David Kennedy, keep pulling 180s when it comes to choosing a president? Well, I, 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 <laughs> again, I think we need to separate, as, as our constitutional system requires us to do, mm-hmm. Uh, the election of the president from the election of everybody else. And we've had, uh, you're absolutely right, of course, that we've had three consecutive two-term presidencies, but if we focus on that fact alone, I think we're going to be seriously misled because that that cannot be taken as evidence of consensus and uh, comedy in our political system. Just look at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue where the Congress has been 
divided, sometimes divided between the two chambers, sometimes divided from the president himself. Uh, again, I can't do it off the top of my head, but there's only been a few years in the last 24 years when Congress and both chambers, pardon me, right. the presidency and both chambers have been right. It, right. in and the hands of the same party. And if you go from 1954 to 1994, about a 40-year stretch, there's a Republican Senate for, I believe, uh, six years, but the rest of the time it's controlled by Democrats. That's right. The, yep. the House the House was controlled by Democrats right. almost continuously from 1930 until 1994, with trivial exceptions. So that, that represents stability and consensus to some degree. Again, for better or worse, there are people who'd argue with the, the results of that. But I don't, I don't think that describes the system we've been living in for the last quarter century at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you talk about the electorate doing the 180, uh, it, it really isn't, it's not quite that dramatic. I mean, just a few degrees of, of going in one direction or another can change the majority in one of the other electoral, uh, pardon me, legislative chambers. And that's what we've got, is a very volatile system. Again, this, the, the, the moment in American history, from the legislative point of view, the point of view of the legislative branch, that most resembles our own is the late 19th century, the post-Civil War era when the presidents were all Republican, to be sure, from Lincoln on, with the parcel, with the exception only of Grover Cleveland, the only Democratic president between Lincoln and uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, the, uh, but the, the two chambers of the Congress changed hands all the time, sometimes in these big swing elections where huge majorities would go one way or the other over a two-year period. And as a result, the Congress was not a reliable place to get business done. Hence, Woodrow Wilson writes that book in 1885, because he's living in an era when he was witnessing, on a daily basis, as it were, the, just the incompetence and inefficiency of the United States Congress as a governing body. That's the, that's the moment that, uh, that lasted 30 years or more that resembles our own moment, I think, uh, to a dismaying degree. Now, a friend of mine attended a function that you were speaking at on election night. I believe it was in San Francisco. And uh, he said, um, paraphrasing, but he said that you were worried that night about the country. Well, yeah, I was worried that night. And um, it's not the only night that I've been worried about the about the republic. Well, we're we're now five months, five months and ten days past um, past the uh, inaugural. What's what's your mood these days? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think that there's anything that's happened in the last five months that makes me any less worried than I was on election night. I think we have a uh, pretty incoherent political system at this moment, uh, one that's incapable of really focusing its energy and the society's energies on the things that uh, I think there's a pretty deep consensus that we need. Uh, infrastructure upgrading is uh, uh, be near the top of my list. Uh, sensible immigration policy would be top near the top of my list, um, a stable health care system that really is efficient and provides for all people to the required degree. I mean, just to take three big issues uh, quickly, uh, why can't we get things done on those particular topics when I think there, there is a discoverable consensus out there in the society at large but the political system doesn't seem to be able to recognize that and actually deal with it. Well, that is my final question. We have, like trying on clothes, we've tried on about every political system the past 25 years. We've had Democratic presidents, Republican presidents, Democratic congresses, Republican congresses. We've matched and matched the parties at opposite ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, and nothing seems to quite work, does it? 
Well, it hasn't recently. You remind me of a famous remark attributed to Winston Churchill that the uh, democracy is the uh, worst form of government except for all the rest. <laughs> and another remark that he made about the Americans, that they can always be counted on to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Well, that that's an aspiration uh, about our nature as a society, that we will eventually get to the right thing. But it looks pretty far over the horizon at this moment, I must say. Okay, so how does a preeminent American historian celebrate the 4th of July? <laughs> Thanks for the celebration, yeah. Well, how do you plan to celebrate the 4th? Well, you know, I'm, I'm up here on San Juan Island in Washington State, and uh, the, the little bit of a town we have is called Friday Harbor. It actually has a, a terrifically grand 4th of July parade, and I'm going to go to it. Okay, very good. So, David Kennedy, I give talks for Stanford alumni, and almost any time I give a talk somewhere and a student comes up, a former student alumnus comes up and talks to me about their time at Stanford, your name comes up as a professor who was important to them. So I hope that you appreciate, through all your great writing and your great lecturing, how much you've meant to people over the years. Well, that's very gratifying to hear, Bill. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you very much again for coming on the podcast. Happy to be with you. You can, you've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter, hand, our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. David M. Kennedy is on an island, but he is not on Twitter. <laughs> Stanford's Department of History is, and that Twitter handle is at Stanford History. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care and have a great 4th of July. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.